I have no idea how many films have been made over the years about the end of the world, or at least the end of the world as we know it. There must have been thousands of them. There seem to be three or four coming out every year. We're quite fascinated by the end of the world, or at least people's ideas about what it will be like. And this morning, we kind of come to one of the main biblical passages on the end. Not the end of all things, but the end of this present world. The passage is Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. It's a passage that tells us about the last battle. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find that on page 869. And before we look at this, it's important to remember where we are in the book of Ezekiel. The first half of the book we saw was full of warnings for rebellious Israel. God was going to bring judgment, and he did. Chapter 33 recorded the fall of the city of Jerusalem. It was overrun by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. But once that happened, the focus of the book shifted from warnings to promises of blessing. Over the last three weeks, we've been looking at those promises and visions of the future. God speaks to the fearful and hopeless Israelite exiles, and he paints a big vision for them of a blessed future. He promises to gather and shepherd his people, to give them a new heart and spirit, and a new king to lead them and unite them. And along the way, we've seen those promises picked up in the New Testament. We saw that although they're fulfilled to a certain degree in the present, the ultimate fulfillment is still in the future. God's promises will be fully fulfilled when Jesus Christ returns to this earth. But there's a problem in all of this. There's a barrier to the fulfillment of God's promises. God has enemies. There are those who refuse to submit to his reign. There are those who refuse to accept his chosen king. That's a problem. And our passage this morning addresses that problem. It describes the final and climactic confrontation between God and his enemies, the last battle. Before we jump into these two chapters, it's worth looking out for a number that keeps appearing in these chapters. Now, I always need to be careful about making too much of numbers in the Bible. Most of the time, they don't have any particular significance. They're just telling us what happened. So, for example, when David went to fight Goliath, we're told he took five stones. Why? Well, I very much doubt there was any reason at all. He just picked up five. On another day, he might have picked up four or six. There's no significance to the number five. So we don't want to go digging for significance in every number we find in the Bible. However, sometimes we just can't avoid the conclusion that a passage is making a big deal about a certain number. And that's the case with our passage this morning. The number seven is all through these two chapters. 
the leader of God's enemies, we'll find, has seven allies. God uses seven forces of destruction against his enemies. Seven times in these chapters, God explains the purpose of what he's doing. He always introduces it by saying, then they will know. When the battle is over, seven kinds of weapons are destroyed. They provide fuel for seven years. And a seven-month cleanup operation is carried out. It's hard to miss the number seven in these chapters. And if we ask what significance it has, well, the number seven is often used as the number of completeness. And here in our passage, it's underlining the finality and the completeness of what's being talked about. This really will be the last battle. So with that in mind, look with me at chapter 38, verse 1. And to begin with, we'll just read down to verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Prophesy against him and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around. Put hooks in your jaws and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen fully armed, and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them, all with shields and helmets. Also Gomer with all its troops, Beth Togarma from the far north with all its troops, the many nations with you. Get ready, be prepared, you and all the hordes gathered about you, and take command of them. After many days you will be called to arms. In future years you will invade a land that has recovered from war, whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They had been brought out from the nations, and now all of them live in safety. You and all your troops... And the many nations with you will go up, advancing like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil scheme. You will say, I will invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls and without gates and bars. I will plunder and loot And turn my hand against the resettled ruins and the people gathered from the nations, rich in livestock and goods, living at the center of the land. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all her villages will say to you, have you come to plunder? Have you gathered your hordes to loot, to carry off silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods and to seize much plunder? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In that day, when my people Israel are living in safety, will you not take notice of it? You will come from your place in the far north, you and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army. 
You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, O Gog, I will bring you against my land, so that the nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Before we go any further, we have to think about the obvious question. Who on earth is Gog? He's first introduced in verse 2. God says to Ezekiel, Set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Well, that doesn't really help us very much. In fact, we don't know where the land of Magog is. We don't know who Gog is. Those names don't tie in to any historical place or person. The allies of Gog do. They're listed in verses 2, 5, and 6, and they do tie in with historical places. But Gog of the land of Magog doesn't. Now, certainly lots of guesses have been made over the years, but none of them really fit. So it seems best to see this as a way of talking about the combined forces of the enemies of God. Enemies that are drawn from all over the earth. That's exactly how the book of Revelation understands Gog and Magog. And here in our passage, when Gog's allies are mentioned, they're drawn from the north, south, east, and west. And there are seven of them. This is a worldwide conspiracy. Gog and his allies represent not one person or place, but the united forces of evil. And this is their supreme attempt to overthrow God and his people. That's the picture here. This is not some small-time tribal war. This is the war to end all wars. And amazingly, we learn here that God himself will initiate this battle. Look at verse 4. Still speaking to Gog. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen fully armed, and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. The image here is of God in total control of this enemy force. Gog and his allies are like a fish on a line or an animal on a leash. And look down to verse 7. Get ready. Be prepared. You and all the hordes gathered about you and take command of them. After many days you will be called to arms. And then down in verse 16. In days to come, O Gog, I will bring you against my land. Does that mean that God's enemies are innocent? Not at all. When this happens, they will be doing what they want to do. They won't need any encouragement to take up arms. The talk about hooks in their jaws doesn't mean they are going to fight against their will. The point being made here is that when the battle comes, 
It will not take God by surprise. Before the battle happens, God will summon his enemies to battle. And this well-equipped army will attack God's gathered people, the people he has gathered. The second half of verse 8 says, In future years you will invade a land that has recovered from war, whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They had been brought out from the nations, and now all of them live in safety. You and all your troops and the many nations with you will go up, Advancing like a storm, you will be like a cloud covering the land. In previous chapters, God has promised to gather his scattered, exiled people. He has promised to tend those people like a shepherd. And here, that picture of a gathered, protected people is repeated for us. But now, they're surrounded by an enemy horde. And that horde is advancing against them like a storm. God's people face a terrible threat. And God has brought it about. As we've said, these enemies are doing what they want to do. But still, God has brought it to a head. What is he doing? Well, verses 10 to 15 underline what we've just seen. And then in verse 16, God explains what he's doing. You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, O God, I, Gog, I will bring you against my land, so that the nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Somehow God will be glorified through this terrible threat. And we've seen in previous weeks that everything he does is for his own glory. And everything God does, his ambition is the honor of his own name. And in God's case, that is exactly as it should be. He's God, the Almighty. There is no one and no thing greater than him. He's worthy of all honor. It is right that he pursues his own glory in everything he does. And here he promises to show himself holy in this situation. It's not enough that God's people know him to be holy. The nations must know it too. And in the following verses, God explains how he will show himself holy in this situation. God will be glorified through the defeat of his enemies. We'll pick up in verse 18. This is what will happen in that day. When Gog attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused, declares the sovereign Lord. In my zeal and fiery wrath, I declare that at that time there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves along the ground, and all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be overturned, the cliffs will crumble, and every wall will fall to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Sovereign Lord. 
Every man's sword will be against his brother. I will execute judgment upon him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones, and burning sulfur on him and on his troops, and on the many nations with him. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness, and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around and drag you along. I will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right hand. On the mountains of Israel you will fall, you and all your troops and the nations with you. I will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds and to the wild animals. You will fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in safety in the coastlands, and they will know that I am the Lord. I will make known my holy name among my people Israel. I will no longer let my holy name be profaned, and the nations will know that I, the Lord, am the Holy One in Israel. It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is the day I have spoken of. We said earlier that God's people face a terrible threat. But in the verses we just read, how much fighting do God's people do? None. How many of them were struck down by the enemy? None. God did all the fighting. And not one of his people fell. In fact, God's people aren't even mentioned here. This is not God's people bravely trying to fight off the hordes. This is God's battle. It's God against Gog. Yes, sometimes the Bible does refer to God's people as an army. But not here. Not in this fight. This is God's fight. And he will get the glory when he wins it. The first half of this section mentions the forces of nature God will bring against his enemies. Earthquake, torrents of rain, hailstones, and so on. And God says at the end of that first section in chapter 38, verse 23... And so I will show my greatness and my holiness, and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. God will get the glory when he wins this fight. The second half of this section deals with the Lord's more direct intervention. He will strike the weapons from his enemy's hands. And God says at the end of that second section in chapter 39, verse 7, I will make known my holy name among my people Israel. I will no longer let my holy name be profaned. And the nations will know that I, the Lord, am the Holy One in Israel. God will get the glory when he wins this fight. Not only will his own people honor and glorify him, 
All peoples will know that he is God. Back in chapter 36, God spoke about the Israelites profaning his holy name among the nations they went to in exile. In that instance, God's name was being profaned because his people had been sent away from his presence. It looked like God couldn't or wouldn't keep his promises to his people. In the case of God's people, God will show himself holy by gathering them and coming to live among them again. But here, God speaks in a different way about his name being profaned. It's profaned when any nation on this earth does not acknowledge God's power and holiness. God says he will resolve that profaning of his name by defeating his enemies. At the last battle, the full force of God's enemies will line up against him. And he will demonstrate his power and holiness in a conclusive way. When the earth rocks and God's enemies fall, all nations will know that the Lord is God. Not everyone will willingly confess his greatness. Some people will do it through clenched teeth. But every being on this earth will see and will acknowledge God's power and holiness. God will get the glory when he wins this fight. Chapter 39, verses 9 to 20, deal with the aftermath of God's victory. And there are three aspects of this mentioned here. First of all, in verses 9 and 10, an end to war. Then those who live in the towns of Israel will go out and use the weapons for fuel and burn them up. The small and large shields, the bows and arrows, the war clubs and spears. For seven years they will use them for fuel. They will not need to gather wood from the fields or cut it from the forests because they will use the weapons for fuel and they will plunder those who plundered them and loot those who looted them, declares the Sovereign Lord. We saw earlier that there was no mention of God's people during the battle. Here we learn that apparently they're untouched by the enemy attack. They emerge onto the battlefield, gather the weapons, and then the weapons are burnt, used for fuel for seven years. We said earlier that the number seven is used to indicate finality and completeness. Here the message is war has come to an end, really, definitively. What has been described really will be the last battle. Earlier we read Psalm 46, and we find the same message there. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Human history has always been full of wars and rumors of wars. But one day, war will end. 
It will end because evil and rebellion are finally crushed. Verses 11 to 16 show a second aspect of the aftermath of God's victory. A cleansed land. On that day I will give Gog a burial place in Israel, in the valley of those who travel east towards the sea. It will block the way of travelers because Gog and all his hordes will be buried there. So it will be called the valley of Hamon Gog. For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them. And the day I am glorified will be a memorable day for them, declares the Sovereign Lord. Men will be regularly employed to cleanse the land. Some will go throughout the land, and in addition to them, others will bury those that remain on the ground. At the end of the seven months, they will begin their search. As they go through the land and one of them sees a human bone, he will set up a marker beside it until the grave diggers have buried it in the valley of Hamon Gog. Also a town called Hamonah will be there, and so they will cleanse the land. According to Old Testament law, corpses were not to be left unburied. Dead bodies were contaminating. So the significance of the burial of God's enemies is that when the final battle is over, the place where God lives with his people will be a cleansed land. The evil and sin that contaminates this present world will be removed. It will be decisively removed. Again, we find the number seven. There will be seven months of burying bodies. Everything that could contaminate will be taken away. And God indicates where it will be taken to. In verse 11, he says the burial place will be called the Valley of Hamon Gog. The NIV has a footnote telling us that Hamon means hordes. The enemy hordes will be taken to a place God has set aside for them. They will not be around to contaminate the place where God lives with his people. God and his people will live in a genuinely holy land, a land made clean. And in that other place, God's enemies will not rest in peace. Look at verse 17. Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Call out to every kind of bird and all the wild animals. Assemble and come together from all around to the sacrifice I am preparing for you, the great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. There you will eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, as if they were rams and lambs, goats and bulls, all of them fattened animals from Bashan. At the sacrifice I am preparing for you, you will eat fat till you are glutted and drink blood till you are drunk. At my table you will eat your fill of horses and riders, mighty men and soldiers of every kind, declares the Sovereign Lord. These verses describe a feast of flesh. It's a revolting picture. 
And it might cause us to ask, but weren't these mighty men and warriors just buried? How can they be eaten? Our passage is giving us a big picture of the future. It's painted with a big brush. We're not supposed to press every little detail. So, for example, in verse 17, God orders his messenger to call out every kind of bird. And all the wild animals assemble and come together. We're not supposed to imagine the messenger sending out personal invitations to the birds and the animals. This is not the wind and the willows. Nor are we to worry then about how birds and animals can eat buried meat. We're not to press every little detail. But we are to get the big picture here. What we're being shown is that God's enemies will be defeated. They will be removed from God's place, but they will not rest in peace. I think Jesus was making the same point when he described hell as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus was describing what we are seeing here. God's enemies will be defeated, but they will not rest in peace. They will be forever being destroyed. They will never be finished being destroyed. These verses don't mention the word hell, but that's what they're talking about. That's what the valley of the hordes of Gog is. It's a picture of the ultimate destination of God's enemies. It's a place away from God, and it's a place where there is no rest. And we can all be honest, this picture turns our stomachs. It's repulsive. And that's the point. There's nothing pleasant about the future of God's enemies. It's not comfortable to read about it. It's not comfortable to talk about it. And I can assure you it was no easier in Ezekiel's day. In fact, this picture would have revolted Ezekiel's first audience even more than it does us. The Israelites had a whole system of clean and unclean animals. The law forbade them to eat meat with blood in it. And yet here we have a picture of unclean animals drunk with all the human blood they've been guzzling. This is a picture designed to horrify us because it's showing us a horrifying truth. The wages of sin is death. Not a nice eternal sleep, but an eternity of torment. We've already heard one of Jesus' descriptions of hell. But just so we grasp that this is not just an Old Testament thing, let me read you some verses from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19 also describes the last battle. I won't take the time to read the whole description But look on the screen at just a few verses. John says, I saw an angel standing on the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, 
generals and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. The all people here are those lined up in opposition to God's king. Then the chapter describes the last battle, and several specific enemies of God are mentioned. Then we read that the rest of them were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. The verses we skipped make it clear that the rider on the horse is Jesus. But the main point for us to notice is that the New Testament does not tone down the message of the Old Testament. In fact, the picture from Ezekiel 39 is repeated almost word for word in Revelation. The Bible wants us to see that there is no question more significant than the question of where we stand with God. If we are not with him, then we are against him, and we face a horrific future. When Revelation 19 picks up Ezekiel's message, it adds the fact that those who are with God are those who are with Jesus. Being with Jesus doesn't just mean we believe that he existed. It doesn't just mean we believe he was a nice man or a good teacher. Being with Jesus means acknowledging that he is God. God who came to die in our place for our sin as our only hope for salvation. It means believing that Jesus went on to rise from the dead, that he now reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords, and that one day he will return to defeat his enemies and claim his people. According to the New Testament, that is what it means to be with Jesus. And if that does not describe you, then you may feel you're a good person. You may even do lots of genuinely good things. You might behave better than some Christians do. But the Bible says you are an enemy of God. Being a Christian is not first and foremost about our behavior. It's about how we respond to Jesus. That's what determines our eternal future. It determines whether our future is one of peace in God's presence or one of torment away from God's presence. In verses 21 to 29, we find the last word. God is glorified through both salvation and judgment. I can promise you that I take no pleasure in standing here talking about hell. There are 101 other things I'd rather be talking about. But we've seen already in this book that everything God does, everything he does, is for his own glory. His primary motivation is the honor of his own name. 
And that is as it should be. He is God. There's no greater name. There's no more worthy name. As Christians, we are fine with that when it comes to talking about salvation. We overflow with praise to God when we think of how he delivered us from slavery to sin. We love to praise him for saving us from the wages of sin, from eternal death. We have no trouble praising God for the salvation he brings. But what about the judgment he brings? Can we honor him for that? I'm not talking about gloating over people going to hell. If we do that, then we have no grasp of the mercy that we've been shown. Every one of us is hell-deserving. We have no reason to be self-righteous. What we're talking about here is the fact that it is to God's glory when he saves sinners. And it is to his glory when he punishes sinners. God's judgment is not a defect in his holy character. It's part of his holy character. Evil and sin will not go unpunished. Look at verse 21. I will display my glory among the nations. And all the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand I lay upon them. From that day forward, the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God. When God wins the last battle, when he inflicts eternal punishment on his enemies, then God's people and God's enemies will see his glory. That is what Scripture says. God will display his glory through the salvation of his people and through the punishment of his enemies. God is glorified through both salvation and judgment. Well, we need to ask what can we take away from this passage? Let's remember that we're in the part of Ezekiel dealing with hope for the future. In the final verses of chapter 39, which we're not going to read, God repeats his promises from earlier chapters. Promises to gather his people, pour out his spirit on his people, and be with his people. Promises of salvation. Chapters 38 and 39 are first and foremost for God's people. Ezekiel's original audience were men and women who lived in exile. They were a minority. They were hard-pressed and they were fearful. Their future looked bleak. God is sending those men and women the promise of a blessed future. And one part of that blessed future is the final defeat of evil. Nothing will be able to prevent God fulfilling his promises of blessing. Not even the combined forces of God's enemies. Someone has said, if an enemy such as Gog 
cannot separate God's people from the good future he has planned for them, then neither can any lesser evil. But this passage is not just about the future. It was relevant for those exiles every single day of their lives. If the worldwide forces of evil cannot defeat God, then neither could the local forces of Babylon. And the application is the same for us today. Not only do we have here assurance about the future, we have assurance about today as well. The things that are pressing in us on us today will not crush us. The God who will one day deliver his people from the combined forces of evil, that same God is well able to deliver us from the evil of today. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Then a little further down, Paul answers his own question. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ezekiel's picture of the last battle is not just about the last battle. It's about the battles you and I face today. The battles we'll face next week. If God is going to win the last, greatest battle of all, then we needn't doubt him in the lesser battles of today and tomorrow. We are part of a story that is much bigger than today or tomorrow. And we know how that story is going to end. We don't know all the little details, but we know how it's going to end. It will end with defeat for God's enemies, salvation for God's people, and eternal honor for God himself. Earlier in Ezekiel, we read these words. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? The New Testament tells us we live in the time of God's patience. We need not experience his terrible judgment. Jesus died so we could be delivered from judgment. He took God's judgment so we wouldn't have to. It's important that we look hard at the picture of Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's a glimpse of the future. We need to take it on board. And if you have not committed yourself to Jesus, then you also need to hear that the future of God's enemies need not be your future. God calls you to turn to him. And Jesus has made that possible. God delights when people turn to him. 
And our last song reminds us that Jesus' death allows us to draw near to God. We're going to stand and sing together, I come by the blood.